Please turn them in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. If you remember, the church started out of great trial and adversity, but they're strong and they are faithful because of that. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers in faithful living and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian believers, and then Paul began to commend them Uh, for the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to emulate. Like what? Like following the example of godly men and like following the example of the Lord Himself. Like receiving the Word in much affliction and joy. And then like becoming godly examples themselves to those around them. That's all very good. On top of that, and as we saw last time, these Thessalonian believers are very passionate about the Lord as not only the gospel message sounded forth from them to impact the world, but their living faith has also sounded forth to impact the world clearly and passionately. See, Jesus saved them. And now they're all in. Now, the worthless idols of their former life are meaningless compared to Christ. And now, they're all about living for the glory and pleasure of Christ, rightly so. See, they get it. They understand things clearly now. Christ is really, He really is all that matters. And if you have Him, you have everything for life now and for all eternity. And they're great examples for us today. They get it. Paul now begins to talk about his own ministry along with his companions, Timothy and Silvanus, also known as Silas. Let's find out what he says, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you about the gospel of God in much conflict. Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now here, Paul's beginning to defend himself and his companions. It's incredibly sad to me that Paul feels the need to do that, but The need to do that is there, and eternal things are at stake, and so he must do this. He must defend himself. See, Paul was a man who was called by God to be an apostle. And Paul was called by God to preach God's truth and to lay down the foundation of the church. And it was a massive calling. But as we know, Satan always opposes a good work of God, and Satan always opposes good men and women of God, especially good apostles of God. So Paul was under a constant attack by Satan, and he was under a constant attack by people, both from within the church, think about that, and then of course from without the church. Oh yeah, non-Christians hated Paul and the gospel message that he preached, and they seriously opposed him at every turn, trying to hurt him, trying to harm him, trying to kill him, trying to stop him. And we'll see that in a second. But also note that opposition to Paul happened within the church too. Think about that. How sad. How sad is that? False teachers rising up within the church were a constant threat, and Paul was their number one target. That happened to the churches in Galatia, and it also happened to the church in Corinth. 
in Corinth, the false teachers rose up within that church. They saw Paul, the man of God, as a threat to their wicked schemes. So they lied about Paul. And guess what? The church bought it. Pretty soon, Paul was the enemy. And it took a massive effort, a heartbreaking effort on Paul's part to bring that church back to the truth. But man, it was devastating. It was wretched. It was heartbreaking. And it was constant. Paul even had to deal with people bad-mouthing him while he was under house arrest in Rome. It's very interesting because there we find that there was a group of preachers who were preaching the gospel. Yeah, I mean, they were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the true gospel. But their hearts and their motives were evil even as they preached the truth. Isn't that interesting? See, these guys saw Paul as a threat to them, probably because Paul saw right through them. And so, as Philippians 1.16 says, they sought to add affliction to Paul even as he was in prison. So think about this. Even when Paul's in prison, look, there are people within the church who are opposing him, lying about him, bad-mouthing him, trying to hurt him, trying to harm him. Within the church. Well, Thessalonians was written very early on, but even so, it seems clear that there were already people who were trying to hinder Paul and who were trying to hinder his ministry. And here in chapter 2, it seems very clear that Paul's ministry was under attack in such a way that it might jeopardize the advance of the gospel and the advance of the church. And here, Paul seeks to silence that attack. And we'll see that in the upcoming passages as well. John MacArthur noted this. False teachers assailed Paul, as they often do to other faithful shepherds, by impugning his character and challenging his authority. They hoped to ruin the new church by destroying its confidence in the person that God had used to found it. And that's absolutely right. So Paul needs to make it clear that his ministry was a true ministry in terms of his message, his motives, and his godly character amongst them. And all three things are very important. That's why he starts out with those words in verse 1. You yourselves know. And that is a a great appeal right there. You yourselves know, brethren, (coughs) that our coming to you is not in vain. In other words, this is ironclad about us. There's absolutely no doubt that our coming to you was not in vain. The word vain means empty, hollow, fruitless, and without usefulness or success. And Paul's saying, no, that wasn't our ministry. Instead, he's saying our ministry, the ministry of Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, was fruitful, useful, and it was eternally successful. And there's no denying that truth. No, it's very clear to everyone, especially to you Thessalonian brethren. We can only speculate what the false teachers and haters of Paul were saying. Perhaps this. Paul? Nah, don't listen to Paul. He's nothing. Just look at him. He's not much. And hey, his motives aren't right. No, no. He's not what he seems. There's something seriously wrong about Paul. Trust me. Trust me. So you'd best ignore him and, and listen to us. We, we have a truly purposeful ministry that everyone loves. But no, Paul, his ministry is empty. His ministry is unsuccessful. You see how it works? I mean, it doesn't take much, even though it's a bunch of lies. Fact, people are gullible and lies work. And the wicked one and his evil minions know that very well. I've seen it so many times. 
where a ministry is going so well, people are getting saved, people are growing in the faith, sin is being battled against, and spiritual ground is being taken. The Word of God is going out with passion and fervor from a faithful preacher, and God is truly being glorified. And then the opposing liars come who hate a good ministry and who hate a good work of the Lord, and they sow their evil seeds, they work their wicked work, they spread their wicked lies, and pretty soon, a good and faithful preacher of the gospel who's doing a great work for the glory of God is run out of town, even though none of it is true. I've seen it. The strategy works. (laughs) And this is a strategy that was being used against Paul in Thessalonica. So, how did Paul counteract that evil strategy? He says, you know. You know. He calls them to remember their own experience with him, which was proof that the lies against him were false. He appeals to this more than once in this passage. He, verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, as you know. Down to verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember, brethren. Verse 10, you are witnesses. And then verse 11, as you know. You see what he's doing? Six times in 11 verses, he appeals to what they already know, and it's a great argument by Paul. You guys are hearing things about me, but you know the truth of things from your own first-hand experience. So Paul is simply reminding them of what they already knew to be true. Paul is godly. Paul is God's man. We know this. Paul is sincere. Paul's ministry was fruitful and God-honoring. Paul is not the enemy here. We know that. Paul is God's apostle who gives us God's truth in word and in deed. And we know that to be true. See, So Paul says, our coming to you was not in vain. Vain could mean success that bears results, yes, but vain could also be a reference to the character and to the ethic of the missionaries and their work. So that phrase, not in vain, could refer to either the result of the ministry, which was very clear, I mean, the results were there, or for the character of the ministry, which too was very clear. I mean, come on, Paul clearly wasn't a spiritual used car salesman or a slick marketer. Paul clearly wasn't trying to build his own kingdom. Paul clearly wasn't in it for the money. (laughs) No, Paul was doing what he did, along with his two friends, for the glory of God and for the good of God's kingdom. And that fact was crystal clear, regardless of the lies that were being told about him. You know. So Paul says, you know that our coming to you is not in vain. And then Paul gives two important truths about these three missionaries. First, They had suffered before they came to Thessalonica. And that's great proof of his motives and of his purpose. Verse 2. Even after we had suffered before, why does he say this? He's appealing to the fact of their faithfulness to God. See, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had suffered greatly for the Lord. And people who have false motives don't do that time and time and time again. See, People with false motives don't go into ministry knowing that they are going to suffer for it. People with false motives don't go into ministry knowing that their life is going to get much harder because of it. People with false motives don't go into ministry knowing that their friends and family are now going to turn against them and hate them and denounce them. 
People with false motives don't go into ministry knowing that it will mean that they have less money and less things and smaller houses and a smaller retirement and worse cars than they'd have if they didn't go into the ministry. No, people with false motives go into ministry so they can have power. And ministry often allows self-obsessed people to do that. People with false motives go into ministry so that they can stand on a stage and tell people what to do. They love, they love, love, love being on stage. People with false motives go into ministry so they can get rich because of their feel-good preaching. Just ask the majority of TV preachers out there today. People with false motives go into ministry because they are narcissists and they want people to follow them and they want people to listen to them, not to the Lord. But that certainly wasn't Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. (laughs) No, they suffered. They suffered a lot because of their ministry. And that faithful suffering was good proof of their sincerity and of their calling. See, the fakers and the uncalled flame out when things really get hard and when things really get rough. But those who are truly called and those who are seeking God's glory in their life and in their ministry, they endure suffering and they continue to do what God calls them to do in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that hardship. That was Paul, that was Silvanus, and that was Timothy. Let's just look at Paul for just a second because Paul was clearly the main target here. Did Paul suffer before he came to Thessalonica because of his calling by God? What do you think? Yes, intensely. Even before Paul was saved, the Lord said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake, Acts 9.16. And it wasn't long after Paul got saved that the suffering and the pain began because of his faith and because of his calling. I mean, he was constantly run out of town. Tons of people wanted him dead. He was hated by most. His life got much harder after he was saved. He lost everything after he was saved. Friends, family, status, prospects of a secure future, and so on. And his suffering because of his faith and because of his calling was intense. Christ was worth it all, absolutely, but the suffering was real. And he kept on doing what God called him to do in the midst of it, which is great proof of his heart and is great proof of his motives, God. The glory of God, not money or fame or earthly pleasure, no, God. Let me just remind you of One event that happened to Paul before he came to Thessalonica that proves his true heart and his true motives. Paul was on his first missionary journey a few years before he came to Thessalonica, and he was in Lystra, which was where Timothy was from, and this certainly would have been the first time that Paul and young Timothy would meet. Well, Paul preached the gospel in Lystra, and a number of souls got saved, which was which would have included Timothy's mom and grandma and Timothy himself. Soon, though, the haters came. And look what happened, Acts 14, 19. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Okay, that's truly, absolutely brutal stuff. I mean, the normal, think about this, the normal place where a person was stoned was about 10 to 12 feet down with jagged rocks on the bottom. The person being stoned would have been bound and he would have then been shoved off the precipice from behind so that he fell down 
face forward onto the rocks below. Sometimes a person would die from that initial fall, but if not, the person would then be turned over onto his back. Another person would then take a large stone and drop it onto the person's chest, onto his heart. If that didn't kill the person, then the whole congregation would then throw large stones at the person until he died. It's just, it's absolutely brutal stuff. And it, it didn't have to be that way. Right? I mean, it didn't have to be that way. He, had he been in the ministry for personal gain or from impure motives like the haters were saying, he could have softened his message and he wouldn't have been stoned. He could have given the crowds what they wanted rather than what they needed. He could have quit a long time ago. But he didn't do that because Paul loved God more than he feared pain. He loved God more than he wanted the applause of men. And he knew that God was worth pleasing and suffering for even in the midst of being stoned. Intense pain. Think about that. As the blinding, stunning blows fell upon Paul and knocked him into unconsciousness. What do you think he was thinking before he blacked out? Probably this. Soon, very soon, I'll be in glory. Can't wait. I'm sure that's what he was thinking, not, oh no, I made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't have become a missionary. I shouldn't have been so bold for the glory of God. No, that's not what he was saying. But he's worth it. It's all worth it. Glorifying him is worth all the pain. And soon I'll be with him. Of course, that's what he was thinking. So they stoned him, they thought he was dead, and then they dragged him out of the city and left him there because, again, they thought he was dead. Now think about that. These men are so evil that they didn't even consider any kind of burial for Paul. I guess that was a good thing because guess what? He wasn't really dead. Some actually say that Paul really was dead and that he was resurrected from the dead, but the word supposing, supposing him to be dead, shows us that he was still alive after they stoned him and dragged him out of the city and threw his body most likely in the dump. Note that while I don't believe that Paul died and was raised back to life, I do believe that God miraculously kept him alive here. I mean, who survives a stoning? (laughs) Only those that God keeps alive. Okay, so now what? Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Say what? Paul rose up after just being stoned and left for dead and went back into the city. Who does that? Now think about it. Some disciples, followers of Christ, have made their way to the body, the battered, bruised, broken, bloody body of Paul. They're tearfully looking down at that broken, bloody body, and that's when his eyes open up. What? He then gets up and goes back into the city. Why? Well, obviously he had more ministry to do there. Picture him. Bloody, swollen, bruised battered and look he's most likely preaching in the city after just being stoned and left for dead hey don't say see here's the point don't say that paul is in this for the money or the fame or false motives or for himself no way what else about the missionaries this they were spitefully treated in philippi verse 2 This is referring to what happened to them right before they made their way to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 16. The Greek word for spitefully treated is the word hubrizo, from which we get the English word hubris, which refers to exaggerated pride and self-confidence. In context, this word conveys the idea of 
arrogant and prideful people treating Paul and his companions hatefully and loving it while they're doing it. The word speaks of joyfully, think of this, joyfully causing injury, insult, reproach, abuse, and ill treatment. That's that's real wickedness there. And that's what happened to them in the previous town. And the haters were saying that they were in the ministry with false motives. What happened to him in Philippi? Let's look at that real quickly. Well, Paul and his friends preached the gospel there in Philippi. And Lydia got saved. And then others in Philippi got saved. It's an amazing story. Paul later cast a demon out of a girl which made some in that city very, very angry. They said, these men exceedingly trouble our city. And then after that, the multitude rose up together against them. Paul and Silas, also called Silvanus, they were there. And we're not sure where Timothy was at this moment. Okay, what happened? This, the missionaries were beaten. Acts 16.22 says that the magistrates then tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And then they laid many stripes on them. Talk about intense pain there. See, the Roman custom was to allow officers to tear the clothes off of criminals who were going to be scourged. And this is what happened to Paul and Silas. And then they were beaten with rods. The word for rod was used of a club or a staff-like walking stick. These rods were then bundled together and they were used to beat Paul and Silas with. Now, in Jewish legal tradition, there was a maximum number of blows that could be delivered while beating a person 40, but the Romans had no such limit. And we can rest assured that Paul and Silas were severely, seriously beaten. I mean, these rods would have been able to inflict significant pain and muscular damage and bruising and bleeding to these great men of God. Horrific pain, terrible agony, and physical misery. But hey, Christ is worth it. What else? Well, the missionaries were then imprisoned. Verse 23 of Acts 16. They then threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You think prison's fun? Paul and Silas are now in the inner prison and now the jailer has fastened their feet in the stocks. The prison doors were then shut and they were left alone in the cold, dark, damp dungeon, bruised and bleeding. Please note that stocks were a Roman instrument of torture. Stocks were made of wood that had holes in them, and while some stocks had five holes with four for the wrists and the ankles and then one for the neck, the stocks that Paul and Silas were now in were constructed for the feet. Not to secure the feet, that's not why, but these stocks were to be used as an instrument of torture by stretching the legs apart and causing the prisoner to sit in extremely unnatural positions, which were, as one said, intolerably painful. The Romans often added chains along with the stocks, and this was absolutely no picnic for these missionaries. And think about this. They were fastened in those painful stocks after they had just been beaten severely with rods. So they're bloody and they're beaten. They're in great pain right now, and they're imprisoned all for honoring the Lord. So now what? Well, you cry, right? You whine, You complain, right? That's what you do, right? Why, God? 
Why? I'm honoring you. I'm obeying you. And this is the result. Why would you allow this to happen to me, Lord? Is that what they did? No, that is not what they did. They've clearly been called by God. They clearly are not in this thing because of any false motive. What did they do? At about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Acts 16.25. How amazing is that? One called this a uh, the midnight serenade. And here, Paul and Silas were honoring the Most High God by singing to Him in pain and in prison. What can you do in prison? You can glorify God in prison, and that's exactly what they did. If you remember, an earthquake happened, the chains fell off, the jailer got saved along with many others, the missionaries were then released, and the next place they went to was Thessalonica. Okay, so question. Why bring this up? Why bring up what happened to them in Philippi in the previous town? Here's why. To prove their heart for God and others. To prove their sincerity of their calling. To prove that their motive wasn't for any other reason but to glorify God and to build the kingdom of God. I mean, who endures all of these things if their motives aren't solely on the glory of God? One noted this. Paul and his friends had not strolled into the city of Thessalonica as relaxed and overfed tourists. No, they'd entered still sporting the scars of woeful mishandling in Philippi. Treatment like this would have been enough to stop any phony missionary in his tracks. And that's right. But guess what? It didn't stop Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. No, they clearly were the real deal. Paul continues this line of thought when he gives two more facts about their ministry. First, they were bold even in conflict. That's another proof about their motives. Verse 2. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Here, Paul is bringing things uh, back to Thessalonica. Remember, in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey that Paul received the Macedonian call which then led Paul and his friends to go to Philippi and then to go to Thessalonica. We know what happened in Philippi, but what happened when Paul came to Thessalonica? Here's what happened, Acts 17. They went into the synagogue, and in the freedom of the synagogue in Thessalonica, Paul was given an opportunity to preach, not just for one week, but for three weeks. Result, Acts 17.4. Some of them were persuaded, praise the Lord, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not just a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. How good is that? That's happening in Thessalonica. Some were persuaded and they came to saving faith in Christ. Okay, so now what? What happened after that? Trouble. Of course. The haters, if you remember, quickly formed a mob. The mob set the city into an uproar and then they attacked the house of this guy named Jason. Why? Because Jason was a new convert and it seems that he was the host to the missionaries. So they're looking for Paul and Silas. Again, we're not sure where Timothy was at this point. They're seeking to bring them out to the people in order to do great harm to them, to persecute them, and probably to kill them. So a mob broke into Jason's house looking for the missionaries, but they weren't there. But Jason and some other Christians were there, and so the mob went after them instead. The result was that the missionaries were then ran out of town. And note this, false missionaries don't want people to hate them. False missionaries don't want people to run them out of town. No, false missionaries want people to love them. 
and they will do everything they can to be loved, not hated. So the Thessalonian believers clearly knew what Paul and his friends were all about. Not themselves. No, only God and the glory of God, regardless of what others are saying about them. John Phillips wrote, Wherever Paul went, things happened. Souls were saved, people took sides, feelings were stirred, the lines were drawn. Paul didn't slip into town, hold a few quiet meetings, enjoy some good home cooking, pick up a generous honorarium, and slip back out of town again without the city knowing or caring that the gospel had been preached. Everybody knew when Paul came to town. Passions were stirred, things happened, the place was turned upside down. That's right. And again, why they were here was very clear. Christ. Only only Christ. I mean, it says they were bold even in conflict. <laughs> they were bold even when that boldness meant great pain. They were bold even when that boldness meant being hated. Even then, they were still bold because they loved the Lord and they knew, they knew what He wanted them to do. So their actions silenced what the liars were saying about them. Their boldness in the face of great conflict was sure proof that their ministry was not a self-seeking endeavor because if it was, then they certainly would have shrunk back when things got hard. Instead, they were bold and they pressed on even in the face of conflict. The word boldness literally means speaking out. Conveys the idea of speaking freely, openly, boldly, fearlessly and without constraint. The word means to be bold and to be courageous in one's speech and reflects an attitude of openness that comes from a lack of fear even in the face of opposition. It's very interesting. They're speaking the truth without fear, knowing that it's going to cause great harm to them. They still speak the truth boldly. Commentator Morris says that this word boldness denotes the state of mind when the words flow freely, where the person is feeling quite at home with no sense of stress or strain. This attitude includes both boldness and confidence. And that's how Paul and his friends preached the gospel when they were in Thessalonica. And let me just say how hard that is to do. That is not easy to do. I mean, this is true confidence in God here by Paul and by his friends to not only preach the gospel in the midst of great opposition, but to do it so confidently, so freely, so fearlessly. That is not easy. But because they know their calling and because they're doing this for God alone, they are bold, confidently bold in the midst of great conflict. I love that. Lord, help us to be bold and confident like that. Lord, help us to not be cowards when it comes to our faith and when it comes to spreading the gospel of God. Note that they were bold to speak the gospel of God. What's that? The gospel is the good news of Christ. The good news that only Christ gives. Hey, here's good news. Jesus saves. Right? Amen? Jesus saves souls... From eternal wrath. He saves souls from the wrath of God against sin. 
The word save means to rescue from peril, danger, or destruction. And biblically, it's talking about your soul being rescued from eternal destruction, from everlasting punishment in hell because of your sin. And being saved from that means everything. I mean, nothing really matters if you aren't saved from that. But if you are saved from that, then everything else pales in comparison. See, the issue is this. Are you saved? And please note that everyone needs saving. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that everyone is dead in trespasses and sins. Everyone is a sinner by nature and by choice. Everyone is a slave to sin, that Satan owned us, and the wages of sin is death, eternal destruction in hell. Why so high a price? Because sin is a crime against the God of the universe, and the God of the universe is holy, and He is infinite, and the wages of sin is in proportion to the one to whom that sin has been committed. Therefore, you must pay the wages of your sin for an infinite amount of time in hell, or else a holy and infinite one must pay for your sin as your substitute in your place one time. But who is able to do that? Anybody? Right? Only one, Jesus, God the Son, 100% God and 100% man at the same time, the only one who was willing, able, and worthy to pay the ransom price for our souls. And so, good news, He came. Jesus, God the Son, left heaven and He came here. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the sinner's place. And then three days later, He rose up from the dead. And through faith in Him, because of what He did on that cross, because of His amazing grace, you, even a sinner like you, you can be saved. How's that possible? Because on the cross, Jesus took the sin of every person who would ever believe in all of history onto himself, and God the Father punished Jesus for all that sin so he wouldn't have to punish you, the believer. Jesus became the believer's substitute for sin. Jesus paid up what you couldn't pay, and in return, he gives you, the believer, his righteousness that fits you perfectly for heaven. And now, because of Christ, for everyone who believes, the thing that banishes us from heaven, sin, that is taken away, it's paid for in full, and it is forgiven completely. What's the result? Saved. Heaven. Glory forever. Talk about good news. I mean, that's the best news ever by far. And that's what the missionaries preached boldly in the face of conflict. And that's good proof of their sincerity and why they're doing what they're doing. God, God alone, clearly. Second, Paul says that their exhortation didn't come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So Paul first says that they know his character and his motives because his actions has proven that. But now he says it just to be clear. Gordon MacDonald summarizes this verse well by noting this. The apostles' exhortation to believe the gospel was true in its source, pure in its motive, and dependable in its method. As to its source, it did not spring from false doctrine, but from the truth of God. As to its motive, the apostle looked on the Thessalonians unselfishly with their good in view and not with any ulterior impure desires. As to its method, there was no clever plot to deceive them. Apparently, his jealous enemies were accusing him of heresy, lustful desire, and craftiness. So Paul addresses the lies about him here. Look, Paul says that their exhortation didn't come from error. The word exhortation refers to their exhortation to embrace the gospel, of course, but it also seems to include their preaching in general to the Thessalonians, all of what they were saying. 
The sense of what Paul is saying here is that the means that the missionaries used to implore the Thessalonians to become Christians, they weren't done to delude them or to fool them or to trick them in any way. No, they were simply the truths of God. So Paul's saying that their exhortation was pure in its content and in its intent. It was pure in the sense that there was no deceit, there was no error, and there was no uh, uncleanness or impurity of motive either. So Paul says, our message wasn't just partly true. No, it's without error. It it has no deceit in it. It's the pure truth, and it's not adulterated by human philosophy or by human speculation. Instead, it was God's message to them concerning Christ very clearly. Now look, so many people today peddle their own viewpoints in the church. They somehow think that their opinion is important. But guess what? I don't care about your opinion. And you shouldn't care about my opinion. What does God say? That's the issue. That's the issue that matters. And the call is to set forth God's truth as it is, rather than what we want it to be. We shouldn't manipulate Scripture to fit our personal agenda. No, we should simply set forth the truth as it is. That's the call, and that's exactly what Paul and his companions did. Paul also says that their exhortation didn't come from uncleanness. What's that? This word often refers to sexual misconduct, but it seems that here the context refers primarily to their motives, to how their preaching isn't from impure motives such as ambition or pride or greed or self or popularity or or anything like that. No, instead, their motives are pure and godly and Christ-centered. As one noted, so many wandering charlatans made their way about the Greek world, peddling their religious or philosophical schemes and living at the expense of their devotees that it was necessary for Paul and his friends to emphasize the purity of their motives and actions by contrast with these. So Paul says, we're not like those other people. Our motives are pure and right and godly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about false teachers. And there, he notes a few things about them. First, he says that they speak swelling words of emptiness. <laughs> so those guys, the false teachers, speak boastful, pompous, haughty, inflated words that are meant to impress and they're meant to draw people in, not with the good news of Christ, but with their, with their impressive words. They're meant to entice, but they're empty. They're lies. Paul wasn't like that. No, Paul told the truth. Peter goes on and tells us that the false teachers allure others through the lust of the flesh and through lewdness. And there you see their true motives. Lust. Lewdness, sin, self, and their swelling speech is used as a lure that will draw people away from the truth and into the lust of the flesh, into lewdness. Well, unlike them, Paul's motives were pure and they were solely for the glory of God. And Paul's life throughout to the very end reflected that. Peter goes on and says that false teachers make empty promises. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So they not only make empty promises, but they don't even keep what they themselves promise. Look, they promise liberty, deliverance from life's pains, life's troubles, and life's anxieties. But guess what? They can't deliver. I've seen this so many times today. It happens so many times by the prosperity preachers today. 
You can have it all. Health, wealth, success, happiness. It's all here if you just come and follow me and listen to me and give your money to me. And all the people follow, but the promises they make are empty. Their unbiblical promises never come to fruition except for the prosperity preachers. I've heard it so many times. This is going to be your year for breakthrough. The year goes by. This is your year for real breakthrough. Money, fame, and success will be yours. And the year goes by as they're giving their money. This is the year of jubilee for you. Get ready. And the year goes by. It's a bunch of lies that appeals to the lust of the flesh. Me, me, me. But not to God at all. And look, they themselves are slaves of corruption and their lies prove, their lives prove who and what they are. Paul clearly was the opposite of them. See, Paul and his friends also proved who and what they were and what was that? Servants of the Most High God. And they sought to honor Him in the midst of trial, pain, and death. And look, in the end, time reveals the true character of a person. You'll know them by their fruit and usually that's revealed over time. But you see it. You see it. Finally, Peter says that false teachers are just a bunch of hypocrites. By whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. The false teachers, see, they were all talk, but their lives were giving them away. One said that these guys are like a 300-pound man selling diet books. They promise freedom, but are themselves hopelessly enslaved by depravity. But guess what? Not Paul and his friends. See, what was true of the false teachers was the exact opposite for Paul and his friends. And Paul makes that very clear. We speak the truth. Our motives are pure. And our lives have proven that out. And our exhortation didn't come from any kind of deceit. Now here, Paul isn't saying that he was perfect. But he does say that the word that he spoke was perfect. Because it was the truth of God. And also, it was unmixed with hidden snares. Look. Paul's keenly sensitive about charges against the correctness of his message and the, the, the purity of his life. And he's saying, hey, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden. What you see is what you get. Paul didn't come to trick them or to use methods to get them in that, that, that were questionable. He didn't try to get any kind of superficial decision for Christ, but he laid down plainly before them the truth of the gospel and the issues of heaven and hell. Paul didn't trap people into being saved like so many do today, the way a clever salesman traps people into buying his product. No, Paul spoke the truth and Paul lived the truth and he was faithful to God and to the mission that God had called him to fulfill. Unlike the false teachers around him, and unlike what his enemies were saying about him. And so, Paul defends himself and his friends against the lies that were being told about him. Yes, the Thessalonians knew the truth, but Paul needed to appeal to what they already knew, because lies can blind people if they aren't careful. And so Paul reminds them. Now look, there are many lying preachers out there today. There are many lying preachers out there today. And there are many ungodly and impure preachers out there today. Take heed. Listen to their message. Are they really biblical? And watch their lives. Are they godly? Are they growing in godliness over time? And then be on guard for this. Pride. 
pride. Many good and godly men have been overcome by pride because of a little bit of outward success in their ministry, and that pride destroys them. Take heed. Watch out. So, Lord, keep us humble. Lord, keep us pure. Lord, keep us faithful. And Lord, keep us biblical like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord. Help us to be discerning and to be careful and to not let uh, lies ever sidetrack us away from the truth. And help us, Lord, to be a true true church, a a pure church, a church that greatly pleases you, a, a church that has great biblical doctrine and a church that has a godly Christ-centered philosophy, not a man-centered one. So Lord, help us, refine us, purify us, keep us lowly, keep us humble, keep us needy, keep us desperate, and may we continue to do what you call us to do, even in the midst of great conflict for your glory, like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Convict us, light a spiritual fire under us, Keep us true and faithful, bold and passionate, and may we never waver for your glory because we love you and because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.